My grandfather used to tell me, he said, Rick, if you want to build more than a chicken coop out of your life, you got to build it on a good foundation. You know, how you build something determines whether or not it's going to stand up. How many of you remember watching the national news this past week and watched the Hard Rock Cafe Hotel collapse? Remember, here was the video. There it goes. Well, that wasn't too impressive, was it? Thought it, huh? It was in New Orleans, yeah. And uh, I was thinking of a couple of things. When you build something wrong, it'll stay up for a while. I've I've watched that that building could be your marriage, a business, your life, a ministry, and it takes time with stress and pressure and use to find out you've got a structural flaw, and that thing comes down. But it doesn't come down overnight. It comes down over time. That's why people marry 25 years get a divorce. That thing was bad from the start. It just took time for it to finally collapse. And that'll be true for you if we don't build it right. So I'm starting a six-week message series on how God builds, because what God builds will last, will stand up under storms and stress, and will still be standing when everything else falls. So if you want to build something that's going to stand, you got to build it on a good foundation. Psalms 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, you're wasting your time. You labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman watches in vain. So our God is a builder, unless the Lord builds the house. Can you see that? Psalms 104, verse 2, God, you stretch out the heavens like a curtain, just like you and I pull the shower curtain. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, God has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, measured heaven with a ruler, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. He's weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Ever notice builders always have a rule on them, a tape measure clipped on their belt? Here's God measuring out the waters and the heavens and the universe with a ruler. This is our God building. You know, he's building his created order. He's so much of a builder that when he came to earth to reveal himself, he's born into the home of a carpenter. Even his stepfather was a builder. Jesus' first job as a teenager was a builder, a carpenter. Interesting, isn't it? Psalms 127, God builds. And anybody else who builds is building in vain. So unless God builds it, it won't stand. If God builds it, it can't fall. So what is God building? Our text says He's building a house, not a condominium, not brick or stone. This is spiritual language for a family. God is building a family. In the Bible, when they speak about the house of David or the house of Saul, that's not where they live. That's the family, the whole household. That's the genealogy. That's a family. So God's a family man. He reveals Himself as a Father. He comes to earth as a Son. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in eternal unity and relationship. When the Philippian jailer cried out in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. Again, not the building, your family. See, God builds on families. Scripture says He guards the city. What's a city? 
collection of families, a collection of houses. So God is building the house, guarding the city. He's building by families, and what He builds can't fall because He, not AT&T, not the different security companies we all have, He guards it. You talk about a good security system, that's a good one right there, right? So God's building families, and He's guarding the city. Now, God isn't talking about a literal town. God calls His people a city. In the book of Psalms, Jesus calls us a city. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, you are a city set on a hill. Now, how many of you know you're not a city? But He calls you a city metaphorically, set on a hill. Revelation 21, verse 2, and I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride prepared for her husband. Now, watch it. If you guys read too many end-time books, you're going to get screwed up. He just told me, let Scripture interpret Scripture. I'm not looking at a literal town coming down out of the sky. It'll make you nuts. He's talking about the church. All God's redeemed people. He's already called us a city. And if you weren't sure, I saw the new Jerusalem, the Lamb's wife, the bride. That's not a town. That's us. That's the church. That's metaphoric language, okay? This is how come these guys that write these books never get it right. They don't interpret Scripture correctly. Let Scripture interpret Scripture and you won't get far off track. So he's talking about the church, God's covenant people of all ages. So it ain't a town. It's the city Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11. He says he was looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker was God. Abraham wasn't looking for some village or some town man built. He was looking for a covenant family, what everybody wants, family, belonging, placement. So God is a builder, and how does God build? Three ways. Remember this. Number one, He builds revelationally. Number two, He builds relationally, puts people together. And number three, he builds generationally. He's building towards something in the future. In Matthew 16, verse 13 through 18, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who did everybody say I am? I just paraphrase that. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter finally says something right. He says, you are Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, wow, Simon, I'm impressed. You finally said something worth saying that that wasn't wrong. You know, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, by human, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Let me pause for a second. That Scripture is messed up by more religious groups than any other one I know of. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to build my church on Peter. Give me a break. What a mess he is. He said, I'm going to build it on the rock of what he just said, the revelation of who I am. And on that rock that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, the foundation, no other foundation can any man lay. I'm the chief cornerstone, the, 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 the rock that causes others to stumble. On that rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. If he's building it on Peter, we're in trouble. And Peter couldn't be the first pope. He was married. He had a mother-in-law. Now, some of you come from different backgrounds religiously, so I'm trying to help you. 
understand that Peter is not the first pope, and Peter was not the one Jesus is going to build a church on. Scripture is so clear, but nobody reads the Bible. We just listen to a bubblehead, and we don't check it out to see if what we've been hearing is true. Jesus said to Peter, who men were saying that he was, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, humanity, flesh and blood, didn't reveal that to you. Revelation, see, but my Father in heaven. And upon that rock, that revelation, I'm going to build my church. So God is building his church, and what God builds, notice, he guards. He guards it. God builds on the rock of the revelation of who he is. That's, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of the living God, the creator, sustainer, and savior of the world. He's the foundation of your life. And until you have that revelation built into you by God, you can't build anything else on it. Unless the Lord builds the house, he says. So where does he start? Like any builder with the foundation, right? And you put the foundation on a strong place, a rock. And what is the place God starts to build? The revelation is something no man can do. No man can reveal Jesus. I can preach him, but I can't reveal him to you. Only God can disclose himself to you. Anything that has flesh and blood is disqualified. See, only God can reveal who Jesus actually is to you. Remember the the songwriter said, I was blind, but now I see God revealed it to him, who he was. And this is the starting point of how God builds. And if you're not there in your life, there's nothing in your life that will ever stand. No other foundation can any man lay. And boy, we try than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's the foundation upon anything God's going to build in my life. And this revelation comes from God. You may have heard a preacher, but they didn't reveal Christ. God did. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord gives us that revelation, nothing else can be built upon. That's where the cosmic carpenter goes to work. He builds the house, the church, the family on the rock of the revelation of the Son of God, who He is. So salvation is the starting point with my relationship with God. And salvation comes by revelation. John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Jesus, have you revealed or unveiled the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? You can't know the Father without the Son, and you can't know the Son without the Father because it's family. God's building a family, and anything God builds is never built by flesh and blood. So if I have any hunger for God at all, it came from Him. Why? Because in my natural state, and yours too, Romans 3 verse 11, says there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. All we have gone astray, we've gone our own way. So it's God who's taken the initiative to stir me up to seek Him. In my natural unsaved state, I don't want to seek God. I don't want to pray. I don't want to get up and come to church. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to sing. But if you're here today, God is at least working and starting something in you with a revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So God has started the building of the house. Number two, God builds relationally. Once you get the rock of the revelation of Christ in you, the born-again experience, then birth implies relationship. This may be a shock, but every one of you here is the result of a relationship. You didn't get here with the stork, okay? You didn't arrive on earth by yourself. And when you were born, you were born into a family. Good or bad, you were born into one. Why? 
because God builds relationally. And if I'm born of my father, I'm automatically related to any other kids he has, even ones you don't like. The Bible speaks of two births, a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Psalm 68, verse 6 says, God sets the solitary, the, the aloner, in families. See, right or wrong, good or bad, God chose your family. Mine too. God decided whether you'd be male or female, black or white, Asian, Hispanic. God set you in a family. But there's also a spiritual family. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. And this is good news if your natural family kind of sucked. Okay, because for a lot of us it did. All right. For by one Holy Spirit are we all baptized into one body, one family. We come into a new family when we're born again, when we're saved. Verse 18, God has set every member in the family as it pleased Him. Just as you didn't get to be born physically by yourself, you don't get born again by yourself because God builds relationally. There are people who have gotten saved, they're born again, they know who Jesus is, but there's no further building in their life because they haven't identified their family. And you can never know who you are outside the context of a family. I mean, the first person you know is not you, it's mama or daddy. That's why people who were adopted always want to find out who was my real parent. I want to know who I am, really. Where did I come from? And out of this revelation of your family, you find out who you are. That's my daddy, so I'm his son. So you learn out of a relationship context, and that's how God builds you up. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in that body particular. In other words, you get a picture of the family, then you find out who you are, because outside of the family, I have no meaning, no purpose, no identity. My eyes, without the rest of my body, are useless. An eye is very important, but outside of the relationship with the rest of my body, it has no meaning, and it serves no purpose. Ephesians 4, verse 16, for whom the whole body, this whole family, joined and knit together by every joint that's supplying, according to the effective working which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Oh, King James, that's a bit wordy. The growth power of your body is in your joints. That's the growth power of a human body. And the growth potential in the body of Christ is in the joinings the relationships. Until you're joined, set, and placed, no growth, no building can take place. Now, you can go to heaven, but there's, you're not going to reach your potential, fulfill your destiny. No joining, no relationships. God says, okay, no building. So, when we refuse to join together, we look like a cleared piece of land where a concrete slab has been laid, but they never build on it. What builds it up? When you start laying brick to brick or living stone, that's what you are, to living stone. When you start putting things together, that's how God builds. And if you don't have that in your life, He's not building in your life. So God starts your life by revealing Christ to you. Then He builds you relationally. He reveals who you are and where you fit in the body. It's how you find your church home. It's not the church of your choice. What a gaggy statement that is. It's the church of His choice. He puts you in the body as it pleases Him, right? Okay, so God sets the members in the body because unless the Lord builds, remember, you labor in vain. 
You show me somebody hooked up in a church where God didn't set them, and I promise you, they are not growing. They cannot grow. That is not where God put them. Now, what's the difference between sit and set? Welcome to English class. Here we go. Sit is an active verb. Set, S-E-T, is passive. Sit is something I do. Setting is something done to you or for you by someone else. So God sets you in the body. Then you learn where to sit. If you're smart, you won't sit until you're set. And once you're set, you'll stay seated. seated. I will sit. And I promise you're wasting your time talking to somebody who doesn't have that revelation because when the storms of your relationship hit, only the revelation of your relationship will preserve it. If you've been married 30 years, it's not because you liked each other all that time. It's because you've got a revelation of a divine setting by God. And when strife comes and arguments hit, you sit because I know I was set there by God. Now, let me stop a minute. That's, Cindy and I are celebrating, yesterday we celebrated 45 years of marriage together. Yeah. If nothing else, it proves you what's possible. <laughs> Can you, living with me for 45 years, you ought to give her a reward. I mean, that, that, that's, that without killing each other. That's, it's, it's just darn near impossible without the Lord. It just is. But it's, it's beyond that. It's not just knowing the Lord. It's knowing where I've been set. I've been set in this church. I don't bounce around church to church like you change underwear. I don't change relationships like that. And I'm not changing her. I, every temptation that can be given to a human being comes to you and comes to me. Oh, I'm in the ministry. You don't think I get tempted to? You don't think I notice? Did you notice that naked woman on a white horse that was in the second service? No, I didn't see anything. No. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I notice everything. I'm a human being. Well, what keeps you together? It's not, it's not the chassis. It's not, it's not because I get what I want. It's not because she gets what she wants or we're always in agreement or we just never argue. Whoever, you watch too many movies. That doesn't happen. Even those guys do in the movies. They get divorced all the time. That's true, isn't it? I mean, come on, some smarten up. You, I got a revelation. God set me here. I'll stay in my seat. I'm going to sit where I have been set. That is how you stay. It's not because you won't get offended, whether in a church or a business or a job or a marriage or a relationship. Wake up and have a cup of coffee. You've got to know God put me here. I ain't moving. And God put me in this relationship and I'm not moving. How do you, how do you stay married 25 years and then divorce? Think of what it does to the children and the grandchildren. You just screw up everybody for your own personal pleasure because you don't have a revelation of where God put you. All of us could have, and my wife could have better options and I could have options and you could have options. Sure we could. But that, think about the confusion that's going to cause. And think about how that affects the next generation, our kids and their kids. I don't want my kids going through that. Now, if you've gone through that, this is not condemning. It's to say you need to learn now how God builds. You need to find out where God's going to set you, and you need to sit there. And only God should be the one to move you. That, that's about it. And otherwise, you're not going to build much. You know, we've been here, what, 35 years? Been married 45 years. I think we discovered pretty well where we were set, and we've stayed in our place 
and God has continued to make us fruitful to the, throughout our elder part of our lives. And I'm saying it's possible. It's possible to do it. So I want to finish strong in life. I want to finish my assignment. I want to finish my marriage. I want my kids and my grandkids to love me. You know, I want them to cry at my funeral. <laughs> Not say, thank God that old bag is gone. You know, I don't, don't want to say that. So this is the way God builds. And if you run out of your setting, you won't grow. I can th- we think of people right now, we, you know, 35 years, you could pick any church in the city, it doesn't matter. And you can pick people who got out of their setting for whatever reason, maybe they were going through a marital problem, maybe they got offended by somebody, who knows, and they're not growing. And they've, been, they've bounced into three or four different churches. They can't grow. They broke a divine connection. That's not God's plan. It doesn't take you out of heaven. It takes you out of your growth potential. So you grow as God builds into your life through the relationships. My life has been enriched. My life has been changed. My life has been made better by the different people God's put in my life through this church. I cannot tell you how my life has been impacted for good. And it, somebody will kind of kick your bottom a little bit too, keep you, keep you moving in the right way when you're talking stupid or doing something stupid. Somebody in a relationship will come and kind of get in your face and say, hey, shake this off. You'll get through this. It's going to be okay. It's normal. Come on. You, you don't live by feelings anyway. You live by a commitment. See? So relationships actually build us up, and then the body gets built up. Number three, here's the last one. God builds generational. He builds revelationally. He builds relationally and he builds generationally. Now, we've been raised in a culture that doesn't even think generationally. We don't think past lunch. We think only of ourselves. But God thinks, plans, and builds generationally. When God called Abraham, the main issue wasn't Abraham. It was a son for Abraham. Anything God's going to build on a man's life, he's going to build generationally. So it's critically important what you generate. Now, my parents generated divorce, all kinds of bad things. And I said, I don't want to generate that in my, in my lineage. So we stayed married together. We got our children. We've got our grandchildren. And I want to pass a blessing on to that second and third generation, not a curse. If, don't excuse your lousy life because mom and daddy were lousy. Somebody has to stop it. Get your life right and say, that's not going to happen on my watch. That's not how I'm going to build. All right. In Abraham's case, the blessing to come to pass, then he'd have to generate a kid. And for 20 years, he fought, 25 years, he fought a fight of faith because he had no son. The whole faith battle was around a son, a child, a, a genealogy. When God appeared to Moses to deliver Israel, how did he identify himself? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses heard that, he fell on his face and worshiped. Why? Because God had just revealed to him that the building program he started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that appeared to be in suspension for 430 years while they're in Egypt, God had not forgotten and it was still going. God was building through the generations. When God finally got ready to bring Israel out of Egypt, what was the issue that settled the matter? The firstborn. God said, I've given Egypt plenty of time to repent. Now the destroyer is going to come through, and I'll show you whose seed is going to be blessed. Your kids are the seed of the righteous. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be mighty in the land. Wealth and riches shall be in their household. They shall possess the gates of their enemies. They have covenant favor, promotion when they seem least likely to get it. Battles won, they don't have to fight. Policies, ordinances, laws, and legal matters settled in their favor. 
Favor surrounds them. I'm just quoting scripture. Favor surrounds them as a shield. My seed is to be blessed. They're not going to be in a welfare line. I might have been, but they won't be. David said, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his children begging bread. Some of you came out of racism and bigotry and uh, all kind of bad things, maybe poverty, but your kids won't. Not if you're going to build the way God builds. That won't happen. That will not. God will bless your seed and bless the generations to follow. And God said to Israel, I'll, I'll show you whose generation's going to stand. And God made a difference between his people and Satan's people by showing the generations that would survive. And God was telling Moses, the work I'm doing, the building I'm doing, isn't just about you, Moses, or about your lifetime. I'm thinking generationally ahead. You know, may God deliver us from the mentality of me, my life, my job, my money, and give us a generational mentality because we live in a culture that's forgotten the next generation. The real test to see if God's in something or not is, does anything survive past you to bless the second and third generation? See, that's the test. Is our church great? Well, let's see how much survives past us. How much of it will make it through the generational lines? So the test of your ministry or life is not how big we are, or how big our building is, or how big a TV ministry is, or how many CDs and books you sell. The test is the second and third generation. I can name right now over 50 ministers, church groups that are no more. They started, they were on the front page of magazines, they were on television, they looked like God was all over it. And they didn't last one generation. And they are gone, and the churches are gone, or that denomination is gone. These were people I walked with and knew. They're gone. So you thought, well, I thought God was building something great. He wasn't building at all. It didn't pass a generational test. See, I'm thinking at this age of my life, I'm thinking the next generation. Let's empower them. I, I do appreciate Brother Osteen passing the baton to Joel, and it's one of the few cases where he's actually taken the baton and taken the church much further than the father took it in a better shape than the father took it. That, that's generational thinking and building. At least it made it to the second generation. I don't, want, I don't want to die and pass away and then have a church fold. That's stupid. That's not built right. We want that church to be financially independent. We want it to be positioned in vision. We want it to have everything that it needs to move into the next season of life. And that when I give my money, it's not, well, I'm a Christian and I tithe and I obey the Lord so the devourer won't get my money. That's not my thinking. That's kindergarten stuff. I'm thinking about getting that children's building up. I'm thinking about the next generation. I want the debt down. We're negotiating for a piece of land down here at the bottom to reduce our debt and increase our margins so we can provide more. Not for me. Shoot, I'm 75. What do I need? I need another building like a hole in the head. No, but the next generation does. For our children, we do need it. We need a lot of things. We need the chairs that will go up behind these curtains and hold. That'll be the largest venue in this city with 5,000 seats, not pews. They cheat. Seats. Be a total of 5,000 seats. Nothing bigger in the city in a church auditorium. 
but it's no good unless we fill it. And it's no good unless everybody sees the reason we're sowing and giving sacrificially is to bless others and to bless the next generation so that they can say, man, mom and dad left us capitalized, left us with vision. There's no excuse at all for us not to prosper and do well, to make a bigger impact. So we started it. Now we got to pass the baton to the next generation. I wish you'd think that way with me and you wouldn't pinch a dollar bill. Now, think about your children. Think about your grandchildren. Somebody, you know, you're sitting on seats you didn't pay for. A lot of you, you weren't even here when this church was built off the sacrifice and money and labor of people who were before you. So you need to think about what can I leave for the next generation because I'm here. What is it I can do? See, men can build buildings. Men can buy TV cameras. We buy airtime. Men can buy land. Men can sing and play. Men can organize, but only God can build a family. And a lot of what goes on in church and business makes money, makes noise, but makes no difference. We can be popular, but not effective. See, if people don't stay in the placement where God puts you and in your settings, you can't build anything that will be handed off to the next generation. And that's what happens. Many of you came after this church was built. You get to enjoy benefits that you didn't pay for or build. Can you see that somebody made an investment? Somebody put something into it. That's how God builds. So the question is, what are we going to do that's going to remain after we're gone? Are we going to buy seats for people to sit on that we don't even know yet? Are we going to invest in youth buildings that will hold kids that, haven't, that may be just in the nursery? Are we going to build up some spiritual capital in this place so that when we're gone, we can pass the inheritance to our spiritual sons and our daughters? Do we even think like that? Or do we just think about, well, that was fun, or I met my friends and I enjoyed it. And you forget the whole purpose. God's a builder revelationally, relationally, and generationally. Are we going to be generational builders taking the land and making a difference? Or are we just going to hang on at the rapture bus stop waiting for Jesus to come back? That, that rapture hysteria has robbed the church of influence. See, and the church has become blessing-oriented and self-centered. Yeah, we've lost our nation. We've let our nation cave in, our school system cave in, our culture cave in, our families cave in. While we're standing at the rapture bus stop wondering why God hadn't picked us up yet. I mean, why vote? Why pray? Why sacrifice? Why make a difference if we're leaving any minute? See, if we learn how God builds generationally and we believe it, how many marriages could be saved? How many children wouldn't be running away from home? How many Christians would stop church hopping and instead find their place and start flowing in what God is building and what He called us to do together? We can be builders for God's kingdom and leave a legacy that will live on long after we leave this earth. We may be dead, but we'll be still speaking through our legacy of what we left on this earth. And I, there'll be a 50-year reunion, a 100-year reunion at Summit Christian Center long after we're gone, and they'll have some pictures on a wall about our founding fathers and mothers. Well, somebody had to found it. Well, yeah, and we get to be part of that. So it's not just my job or my career. It's I'm placed there. But my income and my talent is to be used to advance the kingdom. And some of you are really good at it. And others don't have a clue why you're here. And God wants to give you that revelation. So if you want a life that's going to last, if you want a marriage that's going to last, if you want a business that's going to last or a church, you're going to have to build it like God builds it. And I promise you, it won't fall. It will stand. For more information on Summit Christian Center, 
visit summitsa.com.